You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you with an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the three that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it's given for our good. Thanks, Manuela. Let me pray, and then let's uh, turn our attention to this passage. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask now, especially a passage such as this, where the instruction feels somewhat foreign to our culture, that you show forth uh, by your Spirit why you left this passage in the Scriptures. And even through this passage, you help us to understand more and more the work of Christ, his love for us, his care for us, and his calling to us. We ask, Father, that you speak again through your word, by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in the third book of Harry Potter, in The Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, we're introduced to a particular character, Sirius Black. You may remember this character. He's an alleged murderer who was imprisoned in Azkaban, the most horrible prison. And you may remember a thing or two about the prison. Uh, the prison had no walls and it had uh, no bars, but it was guarded by the uh, infamous Dementors. And when the Dementors patrolled the uh, people who were in prison and they went near the people who were in prison, they would suck the joy and beauty and warmth of life out of uh, whoever was captured and who was in prison. And so this prison didn't need any walls. And people, the most sane of people, would find themselves going insane because of the presence and power of the Dementors. And no one had ever escaped from Azkaban until we find out at the end of the book. And I'm kind of ruining it, but it's 20 years old, so if you haven't read it yet, sorry. Uh, no one had really been able to escape from uh, the, the, the prison of Azkaban until the end of the book we find out that Sirius Black had actually found a way to escape. And at the end of the book, he is asked, how did you endure the suffering of Azkaban? And he says this, I think the only reason I never lost my mind is that I knew that I was innocent. That wasn't a happy thought, so the Dementors couldn't suck it out of me, but... It kept me sane, 
Knowing who I was helped me keep my powers so that when it all became too much, I could endure. What is Sirius Black uh, saying? He's saying this. He's saying when it came to how he survived in this particular prison, the only way he was able to do it is he knew who he was. He was an innocent man. He had not committed the crimes which he was accused of, which had landed him in prison. And the only way he could endure such horrid situation and such horrid imprisonment and treatment was for him to know who he was. And because of that, he was able to endure. Listen, Peter is writing to a group of people who he's called elect exiles, displaced people all around modern-day Turkey. And if it wasn't bad enough that these people are living something like an exilic life, he now addresses people who are in the worst of situations. Our translation is somewhat cowardly, calling them servants, but they are house slaves. They're slaves. They, in the Roman society, have virtually no rights and no privileges. And you have to understand that I know, especially if you didn't grow up around church or the Bible, you hear Peter address slaves and even the instructions he gives slaves, and you think, that is oppressive. That is unjust. You have to understand in Roman society, slaves composed possibly a quarter of the population, hard to know for sure. It wasn't race-based slavery, but slaves were often found after lands were conquered, say, you know, as, as southern France is conquered. The Roman Empire received a whole new uh, platoon of slaves that would be passed through. Uh, or slavery was some way to find some protection from uh, going bankruptcy. And the very fact that Peter, in his letter to the church, sees fit to address them by name is astounding in this particular world. In this particular time period, in the Greco-Roman world, household codes and ethics through which people lived within the house were of utmost importance to preserve Roman culture and the peace of Rome. And so from Aristotle on, there's all kinds of thinkers who are writing household codes with, which give specific orders of, of how slaves are to act and how children are to act and how husbands and wives are to, to act. And what Peter is doing is he's actually giving something of a household code to the church that is now in this particular society trying to figure out how they work out their faith. And what's incredible is during the Greco-Roman uh, period, by and large, when you read these household codes, and I haven't read all of them, I'm depending on other scholars, but slaves are never addressed. They, they, they have no rights and no moral agency. They're considered, uh, they're, they're considered tools, properties of the master. So when you read Aristotle, for example, in his household codes, he addresses the master of the home only. He doesn't address the slaves. They were, they were considered not capable of having reasoning skills. And Peter, in a quite revolutionary way, does indeed look these slaves in the eye, so to speak, and he addresses them. And not only that, slaves who have no access to the justice system, he says that some of them are suffering, and they're suffering unjustly. And Peter looks at these people who are in the worst of situation. In a sense, who are being patrolled by the dementors, maybe to grab your attention, people whose life sucked. They had nothing going for them. He looks them in the eyes, and incredibly, he addresses them personally, and, in, and individually as a class of people, and he says this, the grace of God can be put on display most clearly to those of you who are leading and stuck in the most miserable of life. The grace of God can be put on display most clearly to those of you who are stuck in a life that, to speak crashly, crassly sucks. 
This is what he says. So if you feel like life's miserable right now, you feel like you're in a terrible situation, Peter's saying it's only in those awful and burdensome situations that God's glory can be so beautifully and purely put on display for the watching world. So what I want to look at this morning is a submissiveness that puts the Lord's grace on display and then the suffering that puts the Lord's grace on display. And maybe we'll conclude our time with some thoughts on where we find the power to exhibit this submissiveness and suffering. So first, let's look at the submissiveness that put God's grace on display when life is terrible, when life feels awful and hopeless. What is the submissiveness that, you, that we are to exhibit that puts God's grace on display? Well, we see it so clearly here in verse 18. How slaves or servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter is telling this church, these people who are now a new people because of the work of Jesus Christ. They were once not God's people, but they are now God's people, a chosen race, royal priesthood, dignified people. He's looking them in the eyes and he's saying, some of you find yourself in horrible and horrendous situations in an unjust institution. And how are you to act? What do we want Peter to say? We want him to say what they sing in Hamilton. Rise up. We want revolution. We want Peter to say, take down this wicked institution. Slaves, come together and in the name of Jesus, take up arms. Go after your slave masters. Overturn this unjust practice. Peter doesn't say that. We also then say, well, maybe Peter's a realist and he realizes that slaves are such a minority in this society. Christian slaves are such a minority in this society. There's no hope they could really do much. So he tells them to just, just hang in there you know, bear with it, sort of take on some sort of stoic approach, be cynical about your master, but just hang in there. Their their days are coming. But Peter actually says something quite the contrary. He says, however you think of submitting to your master, you're not thinking hard enough. Submit more. Submit more deeply, more sincerely out of your heart. Why? Because at its core, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be one who submits to Jesus Christ. And all other submission in life, every other human institution that we're called to submit to, has to fall in its place under submitting to Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 19, this is a gracious thing, a gracious thing, when you bear with, even says take a beating unjustly. When you do this as an act of worship for Christ in the worst of situations, in in bondage to a terrible, terrible situation, when you take on unjust treatment, and you submit to your masters as though you are submitting to Christ, this is a gracious thing, an act of worship indeed, to Jesus Christ. We could illustrate something of what Peter's telling us to do. This is very complicated to think how it relates to us. I don't want to pretend like your employers are slave drivers. It's not comparable. You have way too many rights and way too much available dignity in the workplace. And in fact, for you to just take a beating from your boss, as the passage said here, would be for you to enable, uh, to be sort of an enabler, and in some senses, not act in love to those who are beating you. So I don't want to downplay how different the, the patterns are here, but something of what Peter's saying was illustrated to me this past week. I have a pastoral friend who, um, through some sinful decisions that he made, found himself uh, disciplined. He was told by his presbytery, the group of pastors over him, uh, that he can't minister for a period of six months. And during that six months, uh, you know, as a way and means of feeding his family, he was given a job as a janitor at the largest, a very large church in another area. 
And so he spent his nine to five cleaning the church. And in a, in a Facebook or exchange, in a private group that I'm a part of, we were interacting with this individual. And we asked him, has it been, has it been good to see at least restored work-life balance? I mean, part of what seems uh, fun about being a janitor is there's boundaries. You only have so many hours you can work, and it's easy to say the project is done. You know, the, this room is clean. It's time to move on. And my friend said that something unbelievable has happened. He basically says that as he has been working and serving in this church, vacuuming carpets, cleaning toilets, he's just been captivated by this idea that maybe Jesus might show up, and maybe he might visit that church. And it's transformed how he's cleaned the toilets. It's transformed how he's mopped the floors. He does it with incredible joy. And in the midst of experiencing discipline, something which many of us would feel is humiliating and humbling, a man with many postgraduate degrees, a man with lots of credentials, has found himself serving as unto the Lord as he scrubs toilets. This is something of what Peter is talking about. Listen, I'll say it again. If you're a victim of abuse or harassment at work and you do nothing, Peter is not saying that that somehow is virtuous. But he's saying whatever you do, you do it as though you are serving first and foremost our Lord. If you expose harassment and abuse, you do it as one acting as an agent of our Lord. Peter's being realistic here to these servants and these slaves. He's saying, you don't have any rights. You don't have any choice to appeal to a higher power. You're in an unbelievable situation, and yet, no matter how hard life can be, no matter how unbearable life can be, there's a way in which you could submit that puts God's grace on display. No, I don't know where life is hard for you right now and where it feels unbearable. Your boss might feel like a slave driver, and it might be the type of thing that you do have to bear it up. You might have a coworker that mistreats you because of something that you believe or think. Maybe just mistreats you because they're bitter or angry. Peter's telling us there's a way in which you could submit, you could do your role, as though you're doing it to the Lord, which will put God's grace on display. This is the submissiveness that puts God's grace on display when life is terrible. But now let's talk about the suffering that puts God's grace on display when life is terrible. Where do we see this? Well, we see it very clearly in verse 19 where Peter says that this is a gracious thing. This exhibits God's, this, this evokes God's favor, actually. When mindful of God, you suffer unjustly. Then in verse 21, we read this. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What is Peter saying? He's saying there's a type of suffering, whether you're a servant or CEO, there's a type of suffering that you are now called to. Maybe I'll say this. What is part of the Christian vocation? The Christian vocation includes suffering. It includes suffering. Not everyone will be a servant suffering abuse, but suffering will be part of following after Jesus because Jesus has left for you an example. The word for example here is maybe could be thought of as he set forth for you a template. It's actually the word they would use when they were teaching children how to write letters, the sort of pattern with which the, the children were to trace Jesus has, has left that pattern for you, and now he's told you to guide, your, guide your, your life following the similar template as mine. 
Maybe we could say it this way in, in ways that they would never have understood in this particular culture. But it's sort of like when you are in the deep snow and someone goes ahead of you and you follow into their footsteps knowing that wherever they happen to step, they found some sturdy ground to move on. They're not sinking down deep. Peter is saying to you, he's saying to me, he's saying to these slaves that were in somewhat of a hopeless situation, Jesus has already trafficked ahead of you. So follow in his footsteps. Don't, don't step outside of this. You've got the template before you. Now, it's amazing that the Apostle Peter is the one giving us this information. Because two major stories of Peter's life stand out to me. Remember, when our Lord Jesus tells Peter that he is going to have to suffer, what does Peter say? Not on my watch, Lord. I won't let you suffer. And the Lord has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And also, when Jesus is soon to be arrested, there he is as the sword is pulled out and the high, and the, the high priest's uh, soldier, the, the ear is chopped off. Peter, who thought the way towards glory was through power, has learned that the way towards glory is, traced, is tracing the suffering our Lord traced. The call to follow Jesus, the call to follow Jesus is a call to be near to Jesus, and to be near to Jesus is to be near to the one who saw fit to suffer. Now, now why, why, why are we called to suffer? If you're not a Christian, you think, my goodness, um, this is the worst sales pitch by a guy up there trying to get me to follow this religion, uh, that, that it's a calling to suffer. I have you know that Christians, since the resurrection of Jesus, have been sending, spending considerable time thinking through why, indeed, we are called to suffer. In fact, um, there's a sermon uh, that's actually first translated into English, I believe, by our own uh, Dr. Wheaton, from 470 of a man named Caesarius of Arles in southern France, and he wrestles through this question, why our Lord Jesus, if he had all the power to speak and to bring the world into creation, why didn't he use his power to bring salvation to the world? Why did he choose to use suffering? And in this very early sermon, a very, very compelling argument is made that our Lord Jesus saw fit. He could have brought salvation by sheer power, but he chose to bring it by humility and suffering so that the principles of reason and justice might be properly elevated to the watching world. He chose to show forth his power by setting aside his power and suffering unjustly so that he might bring salvation to those who justly deserve condemnation. More recently, you can read that, you can read that, that sermon. Uh, if you ask Dr. Wheaton, he might even be able to recite it to you. <laughs> More recently, there's been a professor that has made a big impact in my life, and I don't endorse everything he writes and thinks, but his name is Dr. Miroslav Volf. He's at Yale. Uh, he's a Croatian man, and when he was six years old, uh, his, his brother was um, senselessly murdered, senselessly murdered by, by soldiers during the, some of the U Yugoslavian conflict. And he's had to wrestle his whole life through what does it mean to forgive and to live in such a difficult world. In reflecting on this passage, Wolf has some extended comments that I think are worth our time. He says this, We should keep in mind that the call to follow the crucified Messiah into suffering was, in the long run, much more effective at changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structure than direct exhortations to revolution, revolutionize them would have ever been. He goes on to say, The cross of Christ should teach us that the only alternative to violence is a willingness to absorb violence and embrace the other that truth and justice uh, that truth and justice have and will be upheld by God. He explains, goes on to unpack it this way, and this is very important. Listen closely. He says this: the only way to conquer evil is to absorb it, to take it into yourself and disarm it. 
to neutralize its acids, to serve as a face mask for its smog, to put a straitjacket on it and turn it over to God. There is nothing sentimental or the least bit easy about this. There is not even a guarantee that it's going to work, but one thing is sure. When we replay evil for evil, evil is all there is, and it grows bigger and more toxic, and it piles. The only way to reverse the process is to behave in a totally unexpected way, breaking the, the vicious cycle by refusing to participate in it. And this is what love is. Not a warm feeling between like-minded friends, but plain old imitation of Christ, who took all the meanness of the world and ran it through the filter of his own body, repaying evil with good, blame with pardon, death with life. It worked once, and it worked again, whenever God can find people willing to give it a try. What's Wolf saying? And I hope you're following this quote. It's a long quote, but what he's saying is this. There is a type of suffering, as I've been trying to say, that puts God's grace on display when life is terrible, when life sucks. And it's the type of suffering that looks like this. It's a refusal to pay evil for evil. Because, because when that happens, all that flourishes is evil. But there's a type of suffering that absorbs evil, that takes it in, that, that, that does not allow the, the vicious cycle to continue to grow and snowball, but to st that stops it right in its place. And when that happens, when we're able to suffer that way, the cycle is broken. And Wolf's point, and he's drawing directly from Peter here, is that when we suffer righteously, when we suffer as an act of worship to our Lord, when we take violence upon ourselves and refuse to return violence, love our enemy, what Wolf is saying is, and what Peter is saying to you and to me is that God's grace gets on display. Because the most supreme act of killing violence and killing evil was at the cross when Jesus absorbed these things into his body and refused to pay evil for evil. Refused to respond with violence, with, for uh, the violence he received with violence. He broke the cycle. And this is the supreme act of God's grace that puts God's grace on display to the watching world. If we could all just go out and do this, if we could get a mass of people all willing to do this, the world would be an unbelievably different place. God's grace would be on high display being wronged at the workplace. Sure, you might have to go to HR, but you don't mount a campaign to dismantle and dislodge somebody. Being mistreated by a client or a customer. Sure, you might never work with this person again and have to put boundaries around them, but you still respond, not with evil, but with good. There is a way to suffer, a way to take on mistreatment, that, put God's, that puts God's grace on display. And dare I say, it puts it on display much more clearly than right worship. It puts it on display much more clearly than any sermon ever could. People who see it can't stand it. In the Screwtape letters, Screwtape, this senior demon writes to Wormwood, his understudy, and he says this line, Our cause, that is these demons' cause to trip up the Christians, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks, why has he been forsaken, and yet still obeys? In the face of suffering, when it feels like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When at that very point, in faith, you respond in obedience and in service to our Lord, God's grace is held high. It is put on display. Peter is saying there is no other life in the Christian life than the cross-shaped life. Now, if Peter can give this, demand, this command to slaves with virtually no rights, some of whom were greatly mistreated, treated like property, I don't want to be 
over the top here, but the woman's body was not her own. It belonged to the slave master. If he can give this command to these people, my goodness, why do you play tit for tat with your spouse about household chores? Why do you feel there's such a grave injustice with how you, what your neighbor has done to you? What he did on your lawn, on your property, the way he talks about you? That family member that you haven't talked to in a long time because, boy, they wronged you and you are not going to have it. They wronged you and you are let it, they're going to let them sulk in it. If Peter can say this to slaves who have virtually no rights and tell them there is a way that you can suffer that puts God's grace on display, my goodness, my goodness, I don't even, I don't even want to venture to think what he would say to me about the petty suffering that I refuse to take, that I respond not with gracious behavior, but with evil. There's a type of suffering that puts God's on display. Let me conclude our time by saying, where do we get the power to do this? And that's what the, the, the tail end of this passage seems to be all about, because Jesus' suffering was not just an example. It did something. It accomplished something. It completed something. Verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were, like, you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. What is Peter saying about Jesus' suffering is that it's not just an example. It's not just the creme de la creme, the gold standard to look up to. No, Peter is reflecting on this ancient prophecy from Isaiah 53, which was part of our words of assurance. And he's saying that Jesus' suffering was redemptive. It actually accomplished something. It absorbed the debts. It paid the price of sin. It broke that snowballing effect of violence and rebellion against God, that, that snowballing effect of corruption in our world. It stopped it in its place. It absorbed it. That's how he handled suffering, and his suffering, therefore, is redemptive. It broke the cycle and neutralized it, and it brought forgiveness, right standing. We were wounded he was wounded, sorry, we find ourselves now healed. We were wandering, running as far and fast as we could away from God, and by his suffering, he came and found us, and he brought us back into the fold, and he promises to keep us. It's not just forgiveness offered in the work of Christ, but it's also care and presence. This is how he suffered. Sirius Black could only survive Azkaban when he remembered who he was. So also Peter says, Jesus understood who he was and therefore suffered rightly. And by his suffering, he was resurrected. And now he's telling the church, you must remember who you are. You are a new people. A people who did not earn your citizenship, nor did you inherit it by birth. But it came to you by a new birth from heaven and God's kindness before the foundation of the world, him making himself known to you and applying the work of Christ to your life. And you just receive this by faith. You just hold on to it by trust. This is your, who you are. And if you are going to suffer well in a world where dementors want to suck the joy out of your life, in situations of life where things, quite frankly, are just miserable, if you want to suffer well, you must remember who you are. You belong to Christ. He didn't just offer forgiveness. He is now your good shepherd. He is with you. This is the call to the church, that we might submit and suffer in such a way we put God's grace on display. And the only way we're going to do that is remember that Christ's work was not just an example for us, but indeed it was redemptive for us. It stopped the cycle that we were headed down. 
So much more that I could say, maybe should say. Next week, we'll think about, for, for our fifth anniversary, we'll think about what it means to be the people of God as it relates to marriages, especially unhealthy marriages. But I think this is what the Lord will have for us this morning. Let's be a people who submit properly and suffer well, that God's grace might be put on display. Let me pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. We thank you that um, you came to this world and you suffered. You put yourself in submission to all earthly authorities and you suffered. But you didn't just suffer so that you could say, see, it's not that hard. You suffered so that you might stop this downward and nasty trajectory we've all found ourselves in. You suffered to break this silent, the, the cycle of downward degradation and despair that is welling up in our world. You suffered that we might actually have forgiveness individually. I pray, Father, for my sisters and brothers here that we might know that this work you did in Christ is for us and it applies to us personally by faith. And whatever situation we're in, I know there's people in this room who are in horrendous situations where the thought of slavery actually sounds not half bad. Father, make us a people who submit as unto you and suffer in such a way that your grace and glory will be put on display. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.